Welcome to Behavioral Grooves. My name is Kurt Nelson. And I'm Tim Houlihan. Behavioral Grooves is a long-form interview podcast where our guests help us understand why we do what we do. But before we get to our guest, I have a question for you, Kurt. What? Why do you always get to ask the questions? When, when am I going to get to ask a question? Look, man, you are welcome to ask any questions, okay. but not today. Oh, God. <laughs> when you read the book Mindfuck by Chris Wiley, were you surprised by any of the details of how governments and political contractors are using social media to influence people? Oh, yeah. I was definitely surprised by a lot of things. So first, um, I was surprised because it didn't need to be a large-scale influence in order to be effective, right? right. It, you could literally target the most vulnerable and then have that build from that, right? So uh, second, I think the extent that they were able to get highly targeted social media messages in front of those vulnerable people, I think that was really interesting. Third, the way that they were able to match the personalities. We all have heard about the Facebook pieces, but they, you know, they were able to discern from Facebook likes what messages would match that personality in order to trigger a specific response. Right. And then and then last, the thing that just really, you know, kind of ticked me off the most was just how corrupt those guys actually were. That the, the People that were leading this charge just didn't care. There was no moral foundation, or there was a moral foundation that I guess maybe is way different than mine, and so I find it corrupt. So yeah. that was it. There are some bad people out there. Yeah. Well, one of the items that our guest in this episode brings up is that the power to influence people, and you don't even need to have these personality matching or identifying vulnerable groups, No. but just the use of some data analysis, you can find emotional triggers and cues and use them to influence people in a vast number of ways. Yeah, and good, bad, uh, all of and, that. And that's, I yeah. think, an interesting part. So. But our guest, John Fuse, has worked with governments and private firms to get inside the heads of consumers, and he's doing it with really high ethical standards. Yes, he is that, definitely not Cambridge Analytica. No, no. John is one of the founders of Verifix, and Verifix is a cloud-based application that connects brands with users on issues that really matter. And he uses the Brand Experience Insight platform. It's the first of its kind to really help make this happen both in government, and he can predict and detect social media interference in real time, which is pretty amazing. I learned a lot about the insights that are available for companies and governments based on our social media, which is both exciting and a bit scary. Yeah. You know? yeah. It's a great episode, and he even liked a lot of the music that you like. How about I that? was very pleased <laughs> that the musical conversation this time. I mean, come on. Depeche Mode forever. Oh, my God. Oh, it was awesome. <laughs> really one of my best uh, times on the musical when, part. When, when one of our guests actually brings up Depeche Mode. I... <laughs> I was in heaven for a little bit. <laughs> a part of our mission at Behavioral Groups is to grow this community and to get more people interested in understanding the power of behavioral science. And in order to achieve that, we depend on you. Listeners are who spread the word. If you find our show interesting, share it with a friend. That is the best and easiest way to help us grow this community. Send a text or email that links to behavioralgrooves.com and tell them that they should give us a try. You can also leave a five-star review or a recommendation on Apple or Spotify or any other podcatching service that you that you listen to. Kurt and I review them all the time, and we love to see what you think. 
These shows are our passion. We love to share the insights that we learn from our guests. We do this on our own time with our own money. Yes, both our consultancies are based on bringing behavioral science insights to companies. And yes, the knowledge and insights that we gain from talking to our guests and grooving on it help that. But this is a passion of love for us. And we want to thank you our listeners. You are the reason that we do it, and we love hearing from you. So please, please leave that review or connect with us directly, either through behavioralgrooves.com or on Twitter. And, you know, uh, we also want to let you know about a terrific forum that's happening in L.A. in early April. It's the Neuromarketing World Forum happening April 1st through 3rd, and we'll have a link in the uh, in the show notes because it's a super cool uh, event featuring Antonio Damasio, great researcher in, in, in neuroscience, and one of our buddies, Roger Dooley. And Tim is going to be there. I'm going to be there. So I wish I could be there, but so, you know, I'm going me. skiing yeah. instead. So uh, uh, Hit me up on Twitter. Let's connect well, if, you, if you decide to go. Yes. Yes. Okay, so with that, sit back and take a sip of your social media influence drink and listen to our conversation with John Fuse. John Fuse, welcome to the Behavioral Grooves Podcast. Thank you, Tim and Kurt, for having me. All yeah. right, we, we're excited about this. It, it's it's terrific. We're going to start with a little speed round, okay. uh, if, if, if that's okay. Kurt, you want to you want to get started? Sure, I'll start. So, if you had to choose between a bicycle or a unicycle, which would you do? Bicycle. Oh, nice. Okay, how about which would you prefer to give up for a year? Your cell phone or a laptop? Cell phone. Yeah. Oh. There's a certain uh, uh, demographic age group that's, that goes with the cell phone versus the laptop <laughs> right. that we found. Uh, would you rather be expert in a new language or master a new instrument? Instrument. Oh. Okay. So which is the bigger driver of business results? Previous actions or emotion? Emotion. Emotion. Okay, good. That, that's, a, that's a great tee up for, for where we want to get started. Um, so it, it's first of all, uh, your, your work, your, your company is Verifix. Correct. And, and, we're, and we've got uh, bio in the, um, in the show notes. But tell us in, in just a couple of sentences at a really high level, what does Verifix do? So Verifix is a behavioral analytics company. We've developed a software product that is giving, we think, are three key insights that are missing from the current uh, kind of marketing behavioral stack, and that is uh, behavioral vectors, where we can go in and, in a population, understand how their emotions are moving against a, a baseline topic. We can extract emotional triggers, so those are issues that, if amplified, will move those emotions. And then we can also test um, the effectiveness of those issues, we call that the implicit delta, where we actually measure the emotional kind of impact of an issue. Um, so, so let's talk a little bit. Can you can you explain what a behavioral vector is? Tell us tell us a little bit about that. So that what we do is inside a society, it's not social listening. We're not limited to social media. We're looking at people's emotions on a weekly basis. Okay. And so, so pick a top any topic you want to pick. Um, bicycles. How do people okay. feel about bicycles on their sidewalk, on their street? On a weekly issue, uh, on a weekly basis, how do people feel about that rent-a-bike sitting out in front of their, their house? Some weeks they may like it, some weeks they may, they may not. And so we measure that on a weekly basis in a society against a topic, um, which kind of baselines, I think, most of the other marketing data that people look at. Um, 
it's much different from what you see on social media. Okay, and so then you're getting you're getting this baseline kind of seeing trends happen. So then emotional triggers, you're talking about emotional triggers. So help us understand it and use the bike example again. What are are, are you identifying what an emotional trigger is that would get people to change their belief about that bicycle sitting out in front of their their house? Yeah, when you when you think about most people in terms of their emotions, right? It's almost a bell curve. There'll be the yeah. people in the middle that are kind of the centrist emotionally. There'll be the people on the on the right end that are leading the pack, and maybe the people on the left end that are laggards that don't want to see change. Um, we have a way to process the data. We we can extract the issues of the people on that front end. Okay. That if amplified, right? If a lot of people now perhaps red makes people more positive about bikes as opposed to orange or yellow that if you if you amplify that issue red the entire population emotionally will start to move towards that position okay um so in other words if if there was uh some element of saying oh bicycles have increased the number of accidents you know the the, the number of bicycles and that that was found to be a uh an emotional trigger that you've identified because it's in the that right hand quadrant of the of the bell curve and that leads then that the, the everybody else is that am i getting that right i just want to make sure that yeah because it's a way to change it's a way to change mes- messaging to accentuate the positive um okay so right in, another way to think about dogs do, do you if someone sees a dog in an ad does that provoke a positive emotion or a negative emotion Okay, for my daughter, it would be a positive emotion. I know that. (laughs) (laughs) But but for some people in inner cities, et cetera, it would be a negative emotion. Exactly. And and then if I'm a large car company, do I put dogs in the ad? Because I'm going to have an emotional transference from that color, from the dog to my product. uh, And it's ultimately going to affect my product. Okay. Right? That's kind of traditional traditional marketing where products were, were... were provided to consumers and kind of culture would move to a product and they would adopt the product and they create a culture around it. It's, it's the issues that push people towards that product naturally. Yeah. So you're going beyond the stereotypes because I think it'd be fair to say that uh, a marketer that's kind of living in the world of stereotypes would say, Oh, dogs are good. Let's just let, you know, dogs are soft and furry and, and happy. So let's use a happy dog uh, in, in our ad and that will enhance the value of our product. Right. That's kind of a stereotypical broad brush approach. Yeah, it may work, but there also might be changes on a weekly basis and there might be regional differences. And you you might do that as a national campaign. Right. Everyone wants to advertise nationally. Right. Assuming that we're homogenous. But the reality is your sales may be down in the northeast and it may in part be for the same reason your sales are up in the Midwest where, you know. People yeah. like fluffy dogs more. Yeah, the, the fluffy dogs could <laughs> it could have maybe not a negative impact, but a less positive impact, right? Yes, correct. And there's also then the anchor, right? Some of the you shift too far to the left, accidentally hit an issue, and you you kind of anchor people firmly into a position and actually reduce the chance of change. Uh-huh. So how do you find them? How do you identify that, uh, if we go back to the bicycle story, that red all of a sudden is the leading indicator for what makes bicycles cool? That the people at the very front of the curve are adopting, are, are, are choosing red. How do you identify that red is going to be the emotional trigger for the, the next bicycle story? We start with one of your pals and said it was, a, it was something that she actually noticed, Annie Duke. 
um, no. her book, right? Her book, Thinking in Bets. I mean, Annie, Annie had a great comment where I think she, she commented that when people place bets, that's a sign of their emotion, right? Yeah. That's their emotional response. So we've developed a proprietary front end where we use ethical data. We don't data mine. We don't use other people's data sets. We go out and we basically of sorts have people place bets on issues have them place those bets on a weekly basis. And so we're basically then we're looking at the difference in those bets before using forecasting, those forecasts on a weekly basis to identify the emotion change. Would it be similar to like the Iowa uh, political um, betting pool that, that they've been doing for years uh, around political, you know, all right, I, I think, you know, I'm going to put a wager on Biden this this month because I think he's going to win because that's actually the money I get even though I don't necessarily agree with him but he's the one I'm going to win versus say you know Sanders or whatever liking versus betting yes and so that's where actually a lot of a lot of this work came out of an original was an intelligence advanced research project IARPA their ACE proposal where they went into forecasting they went into betting and then out of that program spun out all of those forecasting companies and all of those betting companies now that you see that you're talking about yeah so we played in that and it's some of the problems that are inherent in that system we've taken advantage of to, which is how we then extract our data but it's 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 a similar concept um, okay. And I think for our listeners, that's it, uh-huh. at least grasping the concept, I think, is the, yeah. is the key part here. That's actually really cool, though. So you're able to, to look at that weekly data and say, what, what's the trend? What's happening? And then be able to discern what those, as you said, leading indicators are out of, of that, that component. Yeah, the, the trick for us is we actually collect, right, we're collecting data weekly, so we can analyze the change in the data. And then when we do our, our uh, emotional triggers extraction, as much as we like to think we're all individuals, it's actually f- somewhat formulaic. <laughs> <laughs> in, ter- in terms of, think of us as a zebra herd. You know, what ze- If the zebra on the very edge of the herd takes two steps over, do we all move towards that zebra? Mm. If the zebra takes 10 steps over and is near a lion, we let that zebra go and get killed. <laughs> so there's there's a there's a comfort range and it plays into swarms it plays into a lot of other technology that people are comfortable with allowing themselves to be led by someone on the outside. Very and cool. So that's what we basically we can analyze that relatively quickly. Um, and our emotional triggers and it are just correlation at that point, right? We identify three or four things that we think are the the triggers. We don't get to causation until we actually go and do an A/B test on them. Um, yeah, I love this bicycle and red oh. thing because I think it's so random, and I'm really kind of caught on it, John. Go uh, for it. So, in order to discover that red is going to be the next bicycle thing, it's the leading indicator. Mm-hmm. How do you end up testing red? So, say we had two potential indicators, so red and yellow. We could take we take red, we take our panel. Um, that following week we split it to a control group and non control group. And to the control group, we expose them to a story about red. It doesn't have to be about red bicycles. It's just we're seeding and planting the idea of red into their head right before they Mm -hmm. place their bet. Mm. We look then at the effect of red on the bet and quantify that emotional response, right? Because their feelings of bicycles really shouldn't change from this week to the next week. Right. It should be somewhat constant. Right, unless there was some intervention, unless you know their brother-in-law was hit on a you know by a car on a bicycle and died or something. Yeah, I know that, that maybe that's a little dark, but <laughs> but, you know. but but in a in a large enough panel, right? The the one or two outliers yeah. we, we, that occurs, <laughs> we, we we 
can right. account for. Um, but we'll see, you know, a three to four percent change in emotion in, in the bets off of simply amplifying an issue. Yeah. Um, we can then take that and then go into a brand new panel, retest it, see if it had the same impact, test it at East Coast, test it West Coast, test it nationally, and start to see where that issue plays out and how it impacts people. At which point you may find out you sell a lot of red bikes in the Northeast, but you want to sell yellow in LA. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's that's terrific. And given uh, given the variances and the vagaries of context and the human condition, does this vary? When you if you have a client that says, "Well, I want to figure out how to boost sales in the Northeast," uh, do you, do you get pretty specific with, "Well, let's test it not just in New York City, like n- not just in Manhattan, but maybe we're going to look at the Lower East Side and we're going to look at the Upper East Side," and like, do you get that specific? We have not yet. You know, we're only in our, we're on our third beta right now. Because our sample size is much, much lower than surveys, Mm -hmm. roughly 100-person panels, we can go in and take apart issues that require much smaller groups. So one of our current betas is just, it's super cool. I'm not sure how much I can really say about it, but it's looking at um, the general issue of multiculturalism. Okay. But it's letting us come in and take that apart in a very specific area that nothing else has been able to take it apart. You know, so could we could we take to you know take red yellow bikes apart in New York City? Absolutely, because we okay. don't need that many people to start to identify those issues. And so you're just taking all of that component and using that to identify these uh, emotional triggers, and then you test the effect the effectiveness of that and, and kind of moving that forward. So and that's, that, that's basically it. I think most I think in traditional marketing, you know, people have been used to staying with what's old. You know, what's all yeah. works, and so they just kind of repeat that, which is why I think data mining is so popular, because it's just repeating past trends. Uh-huh. Um, and those trends work until they don't. And with social media, these new groups are forming. What motivates them? What doesn't motiva- motivate them? It's changing. You gave a great example uh, when we first talked about uh, some, some data that you were collecting on Claire McCaskill's campaign. Mm-hmm. And what happened when uh, there was some intervention and and things changed? Can you can you talk us through that that particular case uh, for the listeners because it's pretty pretty cool. Sure. So once once you can understand what emotional triggers move people, if you are a foreign government interfering in a U.S. election, you may choose to use those same issues. And that was our hypothesis when we approached the State Department in early. 18 about uh, Russian disinformation on social media. Okay. Was instead of getting stuck looking at all the social media data out there, we would simply look for issues most likely to have an impact on people. So we looked at this issue in terms of Claire McCaskill's race in Missouri. So that was May of uh, 18. In February, we identified um, data that would provide us with the issue Korea. But for whatever reason, when Korea was amplified, it had a negative emotional impact on Claire McCaskill and a positive impact on her competitor. Having that information, we were able then to monitor the use of that term in social media, saw it tested and its impact on the race, and somewhat predicted what six months ahead of time that we would see foreign accounts push the issue of Korea right before the election. And? We gathered a bunch of nice students from George Mason University who were willing to become tail gunners and help me go through about 30 or 40 accounts worth of data that month. And each week we would meet, they'd get their data assignments, they'd go through the data. And I warned them ahead of time what I thought we were looking for, but I also told them I really didn't think it was going to work because I truly didn't. And then lo and behold, 
within that last week, Korea just starts shooting through the roof. And there was no reason for those accounts to have Korea. Some of those same accounts get caught in terms of some other voter manipulation issues that Twitter takes them down 48 hours before the election. But it worked. Yeah, it's fascinating. And so you're not going in and understanding, like trying to figure out why uh, Korea is negative for McCaskill and positive for the opponent. You're just you're seeing that you, you're you're that you're identifying that as this this trigger that is going on, and then you can make some predictions based upon that, right? You're not getting you're not dwelling into the psychological elements behind why voters would see Korea, you know, negatively for McCaskill versus the opponent. Yeah, we haven't, and that's you know ultimately right. That's part of the issue with the whole issue of behavioral dynamics, right? So many of these yeah. connections are so random. Yeah. And they're irrational and they make no sense in theory, right? I'm sure they make sense to the person that's impacting, how they were grew up, what culture they were in, what they were exposed to. Their brain has locked certain connections together, you know, that, that impacts their behavior. Could we go down and, and take it apart? I'm sure you could go down, down and do focus groups and start interviewing people and understand yeah. exactly why that was happening. In our case, we didn't. The way the software works, once we've extracted it, we, we have it. Um, and that was, that was 18. That was a very, very early version of the product um, yeah. where we're just trying to see, does it really work? Um, well, there's been a lot of uh, talk regarding Cambridge Analytica mm-hmm. and you know the work that they were doing back before the 2016 election and bringing in some of the psychological profiles of, of the Big Five Ocean and applying those into these messages, which gets to some of that psychological profiling. But what I'm hearing you say is you don't even need to go that far in order to influence an election. Is that, is that? Yeah, that's correct. And I think that's consistent. You know, when you go back DARPA, so that's the Defense Advanced Research, they experimented with psychometric profiling. And I think they found that it was only repeating 30% of the time. Okay. Right. And I think part of the problem is because as they were developing psychometric profiling, it's really of a discrete group. And whether that really applies to the world as a whole or to other cities, it's a crapshoot. And that's why they were getting a 30% return. So psychometric profiling is not, doesn't really work. Um, and if you're a foreign government trying to jump in and interfere in an election, you don't have the time or the ability or the presence on the ground to go, you know, do that type of profiling necessary to, to even go down that path. But um, you don't need to do that is what I'm hearing you say. So if I'm a foreign uh, country and I want to influence an election in the United States or anywhere else in the world, I don't need to actually do that. I can just uh, take some of these pieces and identify what those triggers are and then use those in an in inappropriate uh, manner in order to... It's an odd area where being ethical gives you a better <laughs> result, right? So, okay, okay. There, explain that. There, well, there's no need to steal people's data. There's no need to be on Facebook watching people. There's no reason to data mine, right? That entire, that entire kind of privacy violation path, what do they get at the end of the day? They get huge amounts of data they can't use. They get... Pad, you know, past patterns that may or may not repeat, and they have no idea why they've repeated and what to what to amplify to change that pattern, mm. right? And so there's big data is sexy because it costs money and big must be better, but big's not better, bad is not better, small, good, ethical, you'll get a better result. And because it's small and easy, that's how you can have foreign governments pop in and pop out and never see what they're doing. 
So when you're saying ethical, it's, it's the data collection part to identify that that is ethical. It is not the intent of the foreign government trying to influence an election, as, as you're saying, is the, the, the ethical part. I just oh, Yeah, ab- ab- absolutely correct. So that's like we, we could get down, go down the path of Thaler and Sunstein's discussions on nudges and are they ethical, are they not ethical? And, sludges versus nudges, right? yep. Yeah. It's this component, though, that as we... We look to what is going on in our society. I think there is this, and I don't have any research to back this up outside of just, you know, the the gist that's out there in the world, that we are trusting information less because we're getting, we're feeling like we're being manipulated by businesses, by governments, by whoever else, because they are able to go down to a level that that identifies this piece. What do you? What do you? Are you thinking that too, or are you uh, seeing anything like that? Yeah, you know, it, it comes into the honesty, honesty of having like a, an authentic interaction with a customer, with another person, right? And that authenticity is gone. When mm-hmm. right, there's a heuristic. As soon as you think you're being manipulated, you reject mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. Right. And so in many regards, when you're scrolling down on your screen and you're getting these ads for random things and you're pretty sure someone's targeted you based on you reject them. And in fact, you then have a negative connotation association with those companies. It's really it's really counterproductive. And that, I think, is that is that difference where marketing switched from products being brought to customers, culture moving to the product and authentic discussion coke right panda bears were hugging panda bears and coke adds life and we're singing in the streets to pepsi and i forget which of the kardashians or whomever that tried to create an inauthentic moment but as soon as you think you're being manipulated boom it's rejected and and that's i think that's the problem with most of the digital marketing right now it loses its authenticity because it's not addressing people at their core emotional level yeah it's it's funny we we interviewed Charlotte Blank um, who's the chief behavioral officer at Merits and she talked to us about this study that they were doing um, and she said don't be creepy right and so what they found is that you know you get that again you 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 clicked on the on let's just say the red bicycle right because mm-hmm. um, you were kind of interested in it and now all of a sudden you're just inundated with red bicycle ads <laughs> right. you know that are coming right. and even in different spots like where that's where it gets really creepy. Like all of a sudden, yeah, I did that. Or I looked, I checked out a red bicycle at a store and now I'm getting red bicycles on my, you know, on my, my Facebook feed. But she was saying that one of the things they found is that if you just gave a reason, like you're getting this ad because you had clicked on this, you know, prior that removed a lot of that, as you said, the, the part of, you're trying to be manipulated, then you understand. And so she said it was a much better result when they were doing that than when they weren't having that information. So it's to- totally consistent. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's yeah. That, that human need to understand why. Yeah. Yeah. We, you know, we humans, we have pretty good bullshit meters. On the other hand, we are also susceptible to all of the nefarious factors out, you know, the actors out there, you know, they, they work to, to some degree. Well, that's, you know, going back to Annie Duke and that book, that's yep. why I think if you want to understand social media, media manipulation, you got to at least read that book. That's on our internal, our must read list. Yeah. Um, you know, and I think she points out that it's humans, uh, you know, they believe then rationalize. Yeah. They, Right, they're not providing. They're not 
checking the information. They just, if it's from a source they believe, or, or if it conforms to their belief, they just adopt it. It's true. Um, and then they move forward because we don't have time to look behind each blade of grass and decide if it's a tiger or not. We just accept it and we move forward. Mm-hmm. Um, where then if you can see if it's, you know, someone's trying to manipulate you or not, if you have a reason, whether the reason makes sense or not, doesn't make a difference, but it ticks off the box. There's a reason I'm not being tracked and they move forward. They were kind of funny. Yeah, well, and ethical actors can can do a good job of of helping explain and lay out that because and sort of give us rationale. Uh, unethical actors can could like in the Claire McCaskill case can just say just bring the word Korea into a post, and it, and it still has the same trigger, the same kind of priming, right? Yeah, and I, I, look, we're we're from the ethical standpoint, privacy. That's one of the big issues as we build out the company in terms of trying to maintain that what's an ethical use of this tool and what's a non-ethical use of the tool. Yeah. If, if you are pro Holly, you'd say it's, that's ethical. If you're pro McCasco, you'd say that's not ethical. Yeah. Um, it's, it's a difficult issue uh, right, in terms of how we market and how we move people and what's, what's for the greater good or not. Do you have a, do you have a, a rubric, uh, some kind of a tool that you use to say, this is kind of where we're going to land or, how, how, are, how are you and, and Verifix uh, making decisions about those ethical applications? I, I wish we did. We actually just had a, a very nice chat with uh, Jeff Kiesler, I think, who was on your podcast Chrysler. Yep. Yep. Chrysler, yep. not too long ago, um, in terms of really pulling apart this issue and trying to establish uh, an ethics board for oversight, mm-hmm. trying to get people in, in the business as well as some, you know, those that haven't been represented on board to try and really look at this and decide, uh, you know, can we be used for gun violence? Sure. You know, to sell vapes? No. Right. Okay. And and trying to, trying to pull it apart in terms of where we want to work and what we're willing to kind of use the technology for. Yeah. Almost an IRB board for, uh, kind of looking at things Uh, that, that makes great sense. The, the, The interesting part about this and what scares me, right. And, and I had read, uh, Christopher Wiley's Mindfuck, which I know we had talked about a little bit before this, to, to the degree that, you know, the vast majority of people I think are ethical and are going to be using these um, technologies and the insights in an ethical manner. We know that not everybody is ethical and that there are governments and or individuals or corporations that might use this information in a way that either skirts that line or, or directly just jumps off the, uh, right over that line and just goes for it. And I don't know what there is, you know, what can we do about that? Is there anything from your perspective on trying again to inoculate ourselves against those unethical uses of this or are we just kind of screwed? <laughs> yeah, well, right. We've, we've already been screwed, so I'm not sure <laughs> we're, we're, we're past that. Yeah. Um, look, when, yeah. So when we when we realized what we had, right, we could run circles around kind of the manipulation that was happening around us, right? We could we could find it faster. We could anticipate it. We could stop it in real time. We could be used for good. We also realized we could be used for evil. So yeah. internally within the we, we kind of saw it almost as developing the atomic bomb, right? Is it good or is it bad and who's using it and how? Which is to start and make sure from day one we're set up with this ethical oversight. Before money becomes, we're already busy, but before money becomes too huge and people are too tempted to chase the dollar, let's start with ethics and try and hold that ethics and try and set up a structure from day one 
that lets this technology grow, but also always keeps a firm ground in terms of uh, what's good or what's not good. So I want to go back to the McCaskill uh, thing that you talked about, because one thing you, you mentioned to us offline was that you found this out and you presented it to the McCaskill group and they said, so what, right? They, they basically didn't really give it very much credence. Where I'm going with this is, you know, there's a possibility here to be able to, as you said, you, you hypothesized about this, you predicted it. And then when it came, you were able to capture that, that uh, information quickly and then transfer it to a group that you thought would probably benefit from it. But if we're unwilling to take that insight and to do anything with it, uh, it doesn't have an impact. I mean, was is there anything that you that uh, if the McCaskill uh, you know group had taken it, could they have done anything at that point, or is it too late by that 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 time? So this this gets to where under, understanding how social media is really used yeah. uh, can can be a little bit of a of a slap across the face for most people, and that is the U.S. Um, uses social media offensively, and I think we see it we see it more when we've destabilized countries, Libya. Mm-hmm. Egypt, right? We've we've used Facebook and Twitter to go after groups. The U.S. has even started, I think it was since 2013 under the Obama administration, started targeting uh, propaganda inside the United States in English, going after ISIS groups and ISIL groups mm-hmm. in the United States, right? All those platforms are used by the United States government. Coming in and adopting a solution or doing something to randomly take people off is not a high priority. Because it does much, this is the good versus evil. It's doing much more good than the potential for tweets about Korea against McCaskill. Right. Add into the fact that U.S. elections, although it's a federal election, they are run by the states. Even at the federal level, you don't know until you find the bad actor, whether it's an FBI issue or whether it's a CIA, NSC issue, you don't know. And so you get into this government quagmire in terms of who's really responsible. Mm. So in the McCaskill issue, her view was it's an issue for the federal government. Got federal it. government's issue is until you tell me exactly who is controlling each one of those accounts, I don't even know what agency to send you to. Got it. Wow. Let alone get down to Twitter. Who, they don't want controversy. When, right. we've met with, when we've met with Twitter, it was guys don't, don't cause trouble. It happens. It's not a big deal. Um, yeah. So it's just the world that we're living in then. Is that, I mean, we just have to be, so it, me as a, as an individual, Tim, as an individual, any of our listeners as individuals, we just have to understand that it's happening and we need to be skeptics on a lot of the stuff that we see. Would you, am I just really downplaying, making this world well, seem horrible. Or, or, or like you said, it's it's too hard to to question every twig snap as, is that a tiger? It just gets to be debilitating. Yeah, so I think as, as humans, the best that we can do is if we see something in our social media feed and we see the fifth or sixth post about the same thing, yeah. ignore it because something's probably going on, right? Uh-huh. It's, it's that amplification. So would it be weird for your friend to send you something about Korea? Maybe not if they're talking about current right, coronavirus or something else. Maybe there's some rational reason to do that. It's when there's an irrational mention of any topic that has no basis in kind of existing fact, what should be happening. You should take note of it and try and ignore it to the extent you can. But once that seed has been planted in your brain, you're going to buy the red bike. Yeah. Yeah. No. And that's, I mean, you, you bring that up, right? It's, it's, we, we get anchored in and then 
it's very hard for us to move from that anchor. And particularly if we don't think that that red bike was placed there by somebody else, that that's our own thought coming in and those those patterns that make that happen. So right. it, yeah. it plays right. We want to believe that we're rational humans. Yeah. Right. But to, but to actually have an effective defense, you have to admit you're irrational. <laughs> and, then, right? and then try and deal with deal with a world where it's you're dealing with irrational emotions and triggers and things like that but uh, we don't have enough self-realized people and there's not enough therapists in the world to get us all on the chair to <laughs> analyze what our mothers have done to us when we were little you know and programmed us so well and even to the part that tim talked about right i mean you can't we're living in an age where every snap of the twig uh, you know, it's not like we get one or two snaps a day. We get thousands and thousands of snaps a day. And yeah. we just, you know, are, are not able to process that in the manner to really take that to this rational actor examining each of them. We just have to, as you said, it's, you know, who's the, who's the messenger? Does it align with what I thought previously, you know, some motivated reason, confirmation bias in there, and I'm just going to run with it. But I, I do like your idea of saying, hey, in that social media thread, if this is something that's out of the norm and all of a sudden you see a lot of it, that's a that's a good heuristic to, to say, all right, my, I should probably double check this and, and take a look at it. Yeah, right. Like right, right now in social media, just even in the in the political ads, right, there's a lot about height, mm, right? Yeah. Like candidate being short, one being tall. That those are emotional triggers. Yeah, I mean, probably what's being mentioned is not really height. It's the euphemism, the trigger for what's sitting behind it, which is more likely an anti-Semitic attack. Mm. Um, and so, but it will hit people. It will affect people, and you're not going to back it out. John, I'd like to uh, I'd like to talk a little bit about music. What? Yes, you talk <laughs> about right. music. Oh my god! I, I'd like to know. I'd like to start with, uh, if we could, what's on your playlist? Let's let's talk a little bit about what 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 you like to listen to at any given time. Playlist. What I was listening to last is probably Depeche Mode. Ah, uh, oh my gosh! <laughs> he is a man my after my heart. <laughs> there is a Depeche Mode playlist sitting on this uh, phone. A lot of Nationals lately. Yeah. Um, there was a little Ziggy Marley. Ooh. Um, yeah, I'm all over the place. I have some old Sinead O'Connor in here, Gary Clark, Sharon Van Etten. Anything New Order is always good. Yeah, I'm all over the place. I was going to say, there's always a reggae station on on Saturday for some reason. KXP's right. reggae program on Saturday is one of the best. Yeah. Wow. There, there, uh, there are a lot of 80s bands in there, so I appreciate that. I know, <laughs> I know Tim, Tim's musical interest stopped after 1978, oh, you know, so, that's, that's such so uh, I, I, can, I can go with that. that. That's such crap. Okay, so, but do you, so when you're listening, do you like to listen to music while you're working? And if, if so, is there a particular kind of music that you prefer when you're when you're working? Depends what I'm doing. Okay. All right. Uh, so yeah, I'm I'm all over the place in terms of music. If I'm into something heavy, I want something with no words. If I'm uh, just trying to chug through data, I need something dancey and have the have the beat driving me on some level. We we actually. Not to bring this back to business, but play a lot with music, right? Because even yeah. music, what do you like? Yeah. And how how much does a Sharon Van Etten or the Nationals sound like an old band from the '80s, such that that jump is not too much, and you love that music, um, right? That's all of what Spotify and uh, 
all of those groups have spent just a huge amount of money researching it to try and predict what people will like mixed into their playlist. Yeah. Spectrum channel on Sirius right now, right? They play oldies and they throw in those two or three, five new groups that sound like the old groups to get you kind of pushed forward on new music. Which is one of the great things I think about some of the uh, streaming station, you know, like a Spotify or a Pandora and different things that if they can do that, what I found um, and they're get they've gotten better. Actually, Pandora is the one that I typically listen to. And they have now given me the option to say, "Do you want to do a deep, deep dive?" So if it's a Depeche Mode, which I do have, I have my Depeche Mode station. I can do a deep dive. So that means going into like some of their, you know, B sides and some other pieces on that. I can do a. I'm going to get these wrong, but you know, another one is basically variety. Another one is uh, the deep dive actually the, is there's a back catalog. That's one of them mm. deep dive. And anyway, so it, it allows you that opportunity to curate that playlist in a manner that if you just want to hear Depeche mode, all right, that's fine. Right. They, they can, you can do that. But if you want to hear Depeche mode and, and, you know, maybe newer bands that sound similar to Depeche mode that you would like, then you'll, they'll throw some of those in. Or if you just want to have a wide variety you can they'll they'll be able to do that too. So those are always nice because there are times when I just want to listen to Depeche Mode, and then there's times when I want to have a wide variety. <laughs> I I have I have been enjoying hitting random on my playlist lately and just letting yeah. go oh. the entire catalog. And I'm I'm impressed with some of the music I've purchased in the past because it's pretty <laughs> good. And I, no uh, recollection uh, whatsoever of ever I, having purchased it. That's always interesting. Oh, I do the good. same thing. And, and sometimes my uh, when I hop in the car, if it's on uh, on the, the audio piece, it, it'll just turn on my my playlist. And I'm like going, oh, the radio station is playing some good music. And then I realize, <laughs> oh, wait, no, it's coming from my phone. And I'm like going, oh, that's why. So I, I thought when you were talking about, you know, going back to business and talking music, I thought you were going to go into, again, music can be uh, some of those triggers. And Absolutely. so, so again, to that degree, and I know that all the, there's been research on the, the wine shops and playing German music and more German wine cell and playing French music and more French wine cell. But I was just wondering if you have looked at any of that, or is that just uh way outside the realm of, of what you guys are working on. We we have not tested songs yet. Um, that is definitely something in the in the queue. We've we've been looking at it more from the standpoint of right with all these streaming services, you play your depeche mode, you play what you like, and so you're not listening to new, you're not exposed to new. Yeah. Whereas when you were listening on the radio, you got exposed to new stuff every day and you knew you were supposed to like it because anyone who listened to that radio station should like those songs and therefore right. you right you like your in group right yeah, That's, yeah. or whatever else you're listening to <laughs> um and so right and the problem right now streaming services having is that everyone's listening to the same thing yeah new artists aren't getting played how much new is good and, and when is it too much of a leap of faith that people say it's I'm going to reject it because that zebra is too far away from the herd. Yeah, this is the, yeah. The, this is a big problem, uh, and and it's evidenced in the in the way the streaming services are paying out uh, are, are paying artists uh, that the top one percent are earning ninety nine percent of all the revenues that that they're earning as much as you know the remainder. Uh, 
total, you know, added up. And so uh, people are listening to the same artist and that's it. Uh, and they're not deviating from that. They're not, they're not getting, they're not having DJs curate playlists that introduce new music to them on a regular basis. Um, you know, we, we used to trust, as, as you said, back on the radio, we would trust the DJ to curate something. I listen to that station. I listen to that show. I like what Wolfman Jack has to say. I like, you know, I, I, I like, we, Wolfman okay. Jack. Well, yeah, just, there, you know. yeah. Pre-1978. There you go. <laughs> For all of our people, he was a very famous DJ back in the 70s. See, but I think that's I think that's a great example because in music you can see where that music, right? Exposure to that new music pushed culture forward. Yeah. Oh yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. We're still not listening to the same bands from the 70s or 80s as the Pesh Mode fans, right? That yeah. it's moving forward. When you don't have that that kind of authentic emotional connection, you stagnate. And that's what that's what digital marketing is. It's still essentially messages from the fifties, you know, sixties. So, you know, pick pick your decade. It's yeah. not moving forward because it's not driving culture forward like traditional marketing has, and it's no different than music. Yeah. And and is that is there a part of that because it is so localized that you don't have the big again go back to the car or, or coca-cola as you said and the, you know i'd like to give the world a coke which everybody knew that advertisement but now there's such um micro targeting in the ads that there isn't that overarching cultural impact that would have happened as, as compared to a national campaign yeah when we start when so my first foray into digital marketing and data mining was like 98 99 when we created a created a, a platform for rx drugstore which ultimately became the fusers by x you might like y type of thing right it was a data mining product tool okay um i'm sure you used technology because it was licensed onto some famous people but that was never supposed to replace traditional marketing that was a tool to help you find a product when i'm in an online shopping store not walking through my local drugstore right but it was an e it's an easy hit because you're just looking for that incremental purchase and it was too easy from a revenue standpoint and i think people have become too dependent upon it which i think is now is a backlash now the popularity of you know kind of the behavioral analytics the people wanting to behavioral sciences people wanting to understand how do i actually move people because we have that huge gap where you know traditional marketing people have forgotten about and forgotten about what it does yeah, you know, and at the same time, we're probably pretty happy with the status quo. We are generally pretty happy with the status quo. We we like the consistency. We like hearing the same music over and over again. Our brains are still not satisfied with with total stultification. We we want something new. We we still desire new sounds and new images and. Um, you know, we, we, we like to break the status quo, uh, maybe not as much as we prefer the status quo, but our brains still need it. I, I remember Google, you know, uh, for a while was, was said that their part of their algorithm was to serve up in a, in a search criteria. They'd serve up 80% of what was exactly part of your search criteria, but 20% that was outside of it, just to kind of stimulate the maybe. Um, but uh, so I, I just, uh, I get a, a weekly newsletter from... Um, Ozan Varel, who, who's writing a new book called Think Like a Rocket Scientist. Um, I really like him. But he wrote this article this week in the newsletter, which is, an easier life isn't a better life. And what he's talking about is, go, he, I, he, he hates grocery shopping. Hates it. You know, he said, it's an hour of my life that I can never get back and I'm going. And so, so when all of a sudden Instagram, Instacart, not Instagram, Instacart came along and he could just you know, order online and it would show up at his door. He goes, that was the, you know, it was great. 
But then what he realized is he said, I am not, I'm missing some of those a personal interactions of just being out with people, seeing people and talking to, to random strangers. But I'm also missing that opportunity to be walking down the aisles and something catches my eye on the shelf that goes, oh, that's new. That looks interesting. I might try that. And all of a sudden, you know, it's finding new foods or new things. And he said, we're giving, you know, this ease of life of, of having everything just a brought to us and this is the identity, you know, here's what you would like by what Google thinks as opposed to you just going out and exploring, mm-hmm. said that may not be the best life. Yeah, I mean, look, serendipity is good. Accidents are good. And when we remove all of that, that kind of stagnates us, right? And so that's culture stagnates. Yeah, um, I, that's a really interesting topic and conversation and just a yeah. thought experiment to go through to what happens when everything is just you know, curated for you without you actually having any input on it. And to your point, I think, John, is that it's stagnation, right? Mm-hmm. So... So that's ultimately what we're trying to do, right? We're trying to, if we can explain why, if we can explain emotional triggers, we can write that authentic communication back to brands, back to people. Let's not deliver customers to products with digital, but let's recreate brands. I mean, there's, there's another Coke out there. Yeah. There's got to be. Yeah, there has to be. I would hope so. Yeah. And, uh, and, it, and by the way, Coke isn't going to last forever. I mean, it's oh, been around for a long time, but it's not going to last forever. So, it, and what are you talking about? <laughs> yeah. So, why not? <laughs> why not have the next one? I think that that's well. A, a, again, if if we look at uh, you know automobiles and and you kind of think about the how in the fifties and sixties it was three car companies, and then you know the seventies you got Japan coming in and and different things, and now you know even today we're getting all the new electric vehicles that are coming out, and there's a number of new companies that are doing that. So yeah, it, it, we are evolving, but how does that work? And and are we going to be open to that if we aren't open to, to exploring and having some of that big brand being presented to us? How are we ever going to find them? All right. Well, John, thank you so much. This has been fascinating. It's got me thinking, which I think is always my favorite part about doing these interviews. And so thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. Welcome to our grooving session where Tim and I groove on what we learned from our Behavior Grooves interview, have a free-flowing discussion, and whatever else comes into our emotionally triggered brains. Yikes. Emotionally, we are. We are sometimes we are just like bundles of emotion that respond to anything that's going on completely subconsciously. It scares the hell out of me sometimes. Well, and, and, and to that point, you know, what's scary about it is that it is subconscious. That yes. we do yeah. not know that it's impacting us. It's it's we're primed for our entire life, and it's always happened. So that's the thing. This, this has always been the case. This is not a new phenomena. The new phenomena of this is that we are getting sophisticated enough with data analytics and with uh, these elements of behavioral science that we can right. apply to this, that it is no longer just trial and error and things out there that are going on in the world, but we're actually being pinpointed and targeted. And those messages that are impacting our subconscious are specifically targeted to us because they want somebody wants us to do something. So this is different from 
in the 1950s after World War II when advertisers discovered that there were a whole bunch of, that the women in the market were not smoking as, and they were certainly weren't smoking in public as much. And well, so they wanted well, to encourage women to smoke to expand their market. So they pr- started printing up ads with attractive women smoking cigarettes at home with ad, with taglines like, Winston tastes good like a cigarette should. Yeah. As opposed to, you'll be manly, you know, that they didn't need to appeal to men. Men were smoking all the time. But women... The, and, and what you're saying is that that was a very generic, general, and uninformed. Right. It worked. Uh, I mean, they, right? they it, did it because it worked. And, and they, it did and, sell and, more cigarettes. And, and different advertisements probably worked better than others, and they could track that. But they didn't have the data analytical power that they have today. Yeah. So as John was talking about, they didn't have this idea that, wow, if I prime red that's going to sell more bicycles, right? They didn't know that in advance. They might just by accident come across a red bike and wow, that ad works a lot better. Or that they don't even have, exactly. And the priming doesn't even have to be about red bicycles. Right. It can be about red anything. Yes. And that actually influenced the sale of red bicycles. And so it gets into some really interesting ethical concerns that that I have that we've talked we've about, talked in, about the, a lot. in the past on this. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so it comes down to, and I think, so just to lay this out, John is very ethical about this and, you know, he turned down work that doesn't feel ethical. The scary part is that I think there are people out there that aren't. That as we oh, talked about yes. in the in the opening, the Cambridge Analytica people, they are scary, unethical people. Uh, that there are foreign governments that have this ability now that are targeting us very specifically for a negative per- Prospect. They right. want America to be bad. I mean, and then this is, goes out to the world. It doesn't matter if it's America or whoever it is. Yeah. They're targeting things to disrupt that for their own gain. So, so those. That's one of the things that really got me to thinking. I mean, I think there's a lot from this conversation. You know, that we could talk about talking about how we respond to emotional triggers. I mean, yes. and and the fact that those emotional triggers don't even have to be a part of the conversation. As you said, the red doesn't need to be associated with the bicycle. It just needs to be placed in vicinity of the bicycle. And that helps trigger you to that. Um, I, I don't think we appreciate how powerful that can be. And it got me to thinking, are any of my decisions my own? (laughs) <laughs> seriously it's a fair question and and following on the ethical side of this if social norms are the foundation for how we view ethics then is it possible that the social norm around what would be acceptable I, i'm thinking of the claire mccaskill discussion yes if we take the claire mccaskill discussion that that the addition of the word korea shot her numbers down the tubes and uh, there were a group of people uh, on the Democratic side, on Claire, supporting Claire McCaskill, who were very disappointed in that and felt it was unethical. I can imagine that there were people on the conservative side, on the Republican side, who were running against her who were like, well, that's just bad luck. Yeah. That's too bad. You know, that, that just happened. But whoops, I guess shouldn't, you know, got to be careful about that, Claire. And we're happy about the results because it, it served their interests and is there ethical is there ethical foundation and the social norm that that we're living by starting to split? I guess is the question. Is it possible that we could have 
multiple sets of social foundations that lead to different sets of ethical standards. Well, I think going back to our conversation with um, Joe and Steve, right, about Messenger, and they talked Mm -hmm. about, you know, lying and everybody who was the British uh, um, person that they said, everybody said, yeah, he lied, but Boris Johnson, Boris Johnson, they acknowledge that he lied. And yet if the, if you agreed with Boris Johnson, that lie was okay. And that it was morally acceptable because he was delivering something that was meaningful to people. So I have a, I, I have a hard time in, in that, and yet I, I don't know if I would be above that, right? There's that aspect of saying, as you're talking about these messages. So yeah, so it worked. Korea worked on, on the McClaskill thing. It and did. if it had been vice versa, and it would have been the other way around. Something, would, po- would, a, a frame or a prime that was positive. Or it and, would have been a, a Korea negatively impacted. Oh, her, her opponent. Her, her opponent. Yeah. Would, would those Democrats who opposed it now say, well, that was just bad luck. Yeah, too bad. Too bad. The same thing that you just mentioned that the Republicans would have said. And I think we all have this motivated reasoning we all do. bias that we have. And so it gets to be tricky. And this is where the ethics of this, I think we need to be conscious and to think about them and to be not just respond. Because in this world... I could be going out and we're trying to we're trying to get more people to listen to behavioral groups. Yes, right? we are. And yes. so we somehow find out that saying bananas uh, is is a thing that is a trigger for people because Lord knows why we're bananas or something crazy. And it gets people to to listen to behavioral grooves. Yet they don't know that bananas is this influence on this. Do we do social media marketing using bananas and different things to get people to listen? Is that ethical? Is it? It doesn't unethical? feel like it is. It, it doesn't. It, does, but it doesn't, doesn't feel. It, but it doesn't test. feel. But it doesn't feel like it's something that's bad. I mean, getting people to listen to the show is not a bad thing, right? But the methods, and again, it goes is uh, you know. Uh, the means to the end, right? And do yeah. the ends justify the, those means? So, well, uh, one of my favorite examples of this, uh, when it comes to this subconscious priming, is a short video that Darren Brown did in the UK. Okay, and I'll, I'll link to it in the show notes. But Darren Brown simply asked um, a couple of ad executives to come to his office and and say, "I want you to come to my office, and I'm going to give you a five minute presentation, and then I want you to develop." a new brand logo for my this imaginary company. Okay. And these two guys agreed and they they filmed them walking from their office outside the front door, getting in a cab, driving down six blocks, getting out, walking uh, of the cab, walking into the office and and then having this 5-minute pitch of this is this Darren Brown lays out what he wants them to do. And it turns out that the what they develop in the hour that they have is exactly manipulated as a result of what Darren wanted them to see. He actually placed primes on the 10 minute drive, walking out the door, walking in the door of the, of the building that primed them to develop an image that Darren Brown says, Oh, this is exactly what I had in mind. And he opens up, uh, it's almost like a, a, a trick, you know, yeah. where he opens up the, his brand idea and it's virtually exactly the same thing. 
I saw, uh, and I don't know who did this, and I'm not going to remember it right, but I'll try to find it. And again, we can put it in the show notes. Very similar, where they had kids coming in, and they had they picked up the kids in a car, and they had these messages going on, like in the back of the taxi cab kind of things. And they passed billboards going by uh-huh, and different things, uh-huh. and they had. Then they came in, and they got to they got through this lesson of watching these products, and then they. Uh, picked the product and every single one, and I believe it was like 10 kids picked the product that they had said that they, they had, they had been primed, they had primed them to to pick. So, so to that degree, how much of our own decisions are our own decisions? It's easy for me to think about priming or, or to using behavioral science to get people to save more, to get people to sign up for, in the U.S., a 401k or some kind of a, a savings plan. That seems like a good idea that it's hard for me to find any objection to that, especially when it's done with a nudge that someone can opt out of. Exactly. At the same time, you're asking the question, how much are we really deciding on some of these things? How much... Uh, advertising is influenced and social media is influencing us to have beliefs that lead us to vote, that lead us to buy things, how much of that is actually in our power to opt out of? Right. Because we, if, if it acts at that subconscious level beyond, you know, it's not at a conscious component, do we have the opportunity to actually refute it and to say, to opt out in a nudge and say, no, I am not going to listen to that. Because we don't like to feel manipulated. We don't like to feel manipulated. That's a terrible feeling. But if we don't know that we're being manipulated, so we had dinner uh, together with our wives on Sunday night along with another couple that we know, and we got into a political conversation, and I had some strongly held beliefs uh, that were different than some Some of these others. others, yes. But it was... but I started to think about and it was that. totally civil. It was oh, definitely it was civil, great. and we yeah. we tried to you know get at the underlying root reasons of this, uh, which I think was part of what got me thinking about this is why do I hold these beliefs about this presidential candidate, and why do they hold other beliefs about this other presidential candidate? Right. And I'm thinking of also like my sister, who I remember at the very beginning, months and months ago when the campaign was first starting, and she said, you know, uh, within the Democratic Party, she's she's on the Democratic side, and she said, I, you know, I'll vote for anybody, but not him. And, oh, oh and really? I was like going, well, wow. why is that? What is going on? What has, because I didn't think that him was all that terrible. I'm like, oh, no, I'm. I have no idea. I think that person is actually perfectly fine. Um, but she yet, was adamant against she was this adamant one candidate. And it felt emotional. And so I'm going, I bet there were some emotional triggers that were pulled mm-hmm. to that. And and how much of that was purposeful versus just, emo- again, subconscious. we have always been and we always are influenced by emotional triggers that are out there. You know, our personalities, you will respond to different emotional triggers than I will, and emotional triggers are out in the wild, in the environment, in our social context all of the time. Um, and we we try to use them, too, in our inter, in, when we influence with others, right? When we're trying to influence others. We, if I know you, I know some of your, your triggers, and so I will, you know, try to influence you and pull that. And you do again, all the time, by the way. I, I notice it. <laughs> And how much of that is actually hard manipulation versus soft manipulation? What is bad? What is good? 
you're getting into a whole bunch of questions on here. So we are. <laughs> we <laughs> haven't really even talked about no. John's conversation, but that's okay. Well, let's let let's recap in this way that one of the things that John said that really struck me was that we like to think that we're rational, but we're really not. And and actually, in order to make any real defense around these kinds of systems that are impacting us subconsciously, we're going to have to admit that we're irrational. We're going to actually have to deal with the emotional triggers, the subconscious triggers that many of us don't want to admit are, are out there. Yeah. I think there's a big piece of us moving forward in this day and age, because I don't think we can go backwards with technology, backwards with the science. We're never going to get to those days can't where... Put, we can't put the toothpaste back in the tube. Right. It's really hard. Yeah. You know, I've tried. It's like, <laughs> oh man, too much. You got to push it in there. It doesn't really work. But yeah, you can't put that toothpaste back in the tube. So, so what do we do with that toothpaste that's out? What do we do now that we have the technology, the data analytic computing power to be able to discern based on scrubbing, you know, ethically scrubbing Facebook or whatever feeds yeah. that are going on there or however it gets done. Um, and the, you know, behavioral science insights to understand, oh, this is your personality, this is different things, or even that these pieces will will trigger you or not. So how do we then come to grips with moving forward? What is okay and what crosses that line? Maybe we need to start with just understanding what is actually happening. Try to understand what are the things that are truly influencing us in our decision-making? How vulnerable are we? And once we have a better understanding of that, then maybe there's a better chance of, of understanding or, or then asking, then dealing with the question, okay, now what do we do with it? So I know we have a number of behavioral scientists that listen to the show. Um, I would be very interested in any ideas from researchers out there, actually practitioners, you know, anybody. Practitioners as well. Practitioners or sure. just, you know, your casual behavioral scientists that are listening in on this. What do you think? Are there are there ways? How do we find out how we are being, how our decisions are being made? What are some of those things? And looking at that to, as Tim mentioned, understand ourselves better. Because I think that's a valuable piece of information that if we can better understand why we do what we do, which is the question that we're always asking, uh, then hopefully that will help us in being able to defend ourselves against people who are trying to manipulate us. Yeah. Let's take the priming issue and turn it into something a little more positive and a little more fun. Oh, of course, because we were getting kind of, we were getting really a serious. This is, yeah. we're normally laughing here. We haven't laughed in three minutes, 22 seconds. <laughs> Oh, there was a laugh. There we there go. We got laugh. it. I, you, uh, I remember uh, last year, a couple of years ago, you were in New York and you went to this really high-end listening room. Oh, yeah. Uh, and they were playing, it, it was like super expensive speakers, right? And they've, they're they putting different food in front of you and tasting different foods and playing different kinds of music. Yeah. Right? You, you, If I remember right, you said that you noticed how the flavors of the food changed as the music changed? It was wine. So okay. it was drinking wine. Uh, again, super high-end uh, stereo systems. And so they played different music. Um, you would have appreciated it even more than I did because it was various different music genres and different things. And they had um, some research behind why they these chose things those were specific happening. 
pieces. You know, okay. But you would drink a, a glass of red wine, and I'm not a big wine guy, so I'm not the guy that, oh, oh yeah, there's some oak flavor and everything underneath <laughs> this. But I could tell. I mean, they would play a song, and all of a sudden the tannins would come out. And then they would play a wow. different song, and it would feel flat. And you could drink the cheap wine, and it, they could play songs that make it taste better. You could drink the expensive wine, they play songs that make it taste worse. And the one that blew my mind, literally, <laughs> it was in my mind, right? Because all this was, was it's all, it's it's all, all in, your in your mind, Yeah, is they had you eat popcorn. And the crunchiness of the popcorn changed by the music that they were playing. Yeah, that's, that's amazing. That's so wild. To that degree, and there's been, uh, you think about the impact that that could have on a restaurant, on just eating at home. You have a dinner party. What's your musical, you know, soundtrack? You should get into, you should just have a whole business around, you <laughs> well, know. Well, we were at a show recently. We saw Iron and Wine and Calexico yeah. and Madison Cunningham. And how much did the venue and the lights and the temperature in the room affect our experience of those performers? I, I, sure, it had to have, right? I mean, the venue is awesome. It just, it's cool. <laughs> it was a cool venue. You know, I think I would have not liked it at all if, if, if it had been like a first half. First half has its own vibe, right? That's different. But yeah. But I'm wondering, like, on your shows, right? Well, you do live shows all the time. Would you ever turn down a show because you're going, that venue isn't going to elicit the right emotions with my music. I'm sure you're. If I've if I've had an experience there to validate my preconceptions, yeah, <laughs> to confirm my biases. Yes, I have. I have. I have said no to venues because they don't have the right vibe, and that could be a combination of the physical space and the people that show up there. But I. There's some rooms that I love to play and yeah. some rooms that I don't like to play. Well, and you probably show up differently because you yes. as a as a performer probably show up differently because of some of those primes cues that are in the environment. Inevitably. Yeah. I, I, yeah. Again, this is it's this, it, I you know, I priming has gotten a bad rap, right? There's been oh, a, the John Barge stuff. The John Barge stuff. Yeah. There's been a lot of the behavioral priming that has been it hasn't been able to be replicated. There has been a, a, a bunch of work on just on priming, though, of of your, you know, again, if I ask, if I start talking to you about, you know, lunch and how hungry are you? And then I ask you, all right, fill in the two word. It's a four letter word. First starts with S, uh, ends with P. It's not going to be soap. It's not going to be soap. Most likely it's going to be soup. Soup, exactly. And, and they've done that, and that's repeatable all the time. We, we know that priming activates neural networks within our brains, and that happens. And there's a bunch, you know, uh, uh, Gary Latham has done some work on goal priming. Again, subconscious yeah. goal priming and how that impacts people's performance. So, And those have all been really well documented and researched. One of those aspects that we need to have pay more attention to and, and just go um, find out more about it and, and really Because it's real. Because it's real and it yeah. impacts us. Yeah. 
Okay, so again, we were going all nice and, <laughs> and, and laughing, and then we got serious again. But we, we're going to end on a happy note with saying thank you to our listeners. Thank you, listeners, oh and hopefully gosh. you laughed a few times and weren't too brought down Maybe by you were laughing at us. <laughs> well, that happens every time. That's I hope true. at least. That's true. We don't take ourselves seriously, so no. our listeners shouldn't either. I hope not. All right, with that, listeners, thank you, and uh, stay tuned for the bonus the, track. The bonus track. This is Kurt with the bonus track and Groove Idea for the week. We grooved a lot on ethics and trying to understand how we are influenced, but we didn't really groove on a lot of our conversation that we had with John. So here are a few key takeaways from that conversation. One thing we discussed was how marketers could do a better job at understanding buyers' intentions by asking them to place bets. Consumers are often asked in surveys about what they think is important or going to be important, but we know our mind processes surveys questions differently than we process bets. All of this gets back to one of our favorite guests and authors, Annie Duke. Asking consumers or voters to place bets gets them thinking in more granular ways than just do I like this or not. Using bets is a powerful tool and you can use it in your own decision making and we recommend you try it in your own life. The second part was about how sensitive people are to being manipulated. We don't like feeling that we've had the wool pulled over our eyes. Yet marketers have been using a bunch of different forms of influence for a long, long time. A third part of this discussion was our conversation about ethics. If ethical norms are based in social norms, is there really, truly one measure of what is ethical? Say you're in part of a population with a certain set of values and those values are different from people in other parts of the population, could your version of what's ethical be different than other people's version of what's ethical? Okay, now let's tee up your groove idea for the week. Based on our discussion with John, and also based on how much we like Annie Duke's approach to thinking in bets, I'd like you to give some thought to a couple of decisions this week. To make it work, these decisions should be relatively important decisions. What we want you to do is to think about the likelihood of those decisions in percentages. Rather than thinking, yeah, I got this, or there's no way that this can happen, that black and white 100% or 0%, try thinking about your decision outcome as percentages. What's the likelihood that your decision will turn out the way that you think it will? Is it 70%? Is it 85%? Is it 92%? Or is it 10%? Give it some thought. Write down that percentage and then come back to it after the outcome is known. What can you learn about that decision? Were you on target or were you not? Try this for a couple key decisions this week and then let us know because it both Tim and I have found this to be really powerful. All right, so that's it. Thanks for listening, and please take a minute to give us a quick review or rating on your app. It really does help us be discovered by people who are interested in behavioral science. So until next time, thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.